Hey there, happy Friday. I'm Raji Sohal in for Jill today. And if you filled up your tank this morning, you might have experienced a little bit of sticker shock as gas prices jumped nearly 10 cents overnight in Metro Vancouver. And now with only, I guess, nine days left until Christmas, you might be needing to drive a lot right now, maybe run some errands in preparation for the holidays. So we're checking in with an expert on what to do to cut those fuel costs. I'm joined now by automotive journalist from driving.ca, Lorraine Sommerfeld. Hello, Lorraine. How you doing? I'm well. It's always great to speak with you. Those gas prices. <laughs> yes. 10 cents overnight was a little bit of a shocker for myself. Now, wow. it is so cold out there. And so I expect people, you know, with these uh, looming Christmas shopping deadlines on them, uh, they've got to drive to where they're going. And then with gas prices having just jumped again, we need your tips on how to save fuel while driving. Best way to save fuel is not leave the driveway. And I know that's horrible. <laughs> but if you think about it, every trip you don't have to take saves money. Plan your trips. You know, think ahead of time where you're going. If you can make all right turns and not be idling making left turns. So do an itinerary. And it sounds kind of dorky, but it really works. That's why FedEx people, they all have routes mapped out to save money. And this is how they save time and money. That so is so smart. Ahead. It, it saves you a ton of time, and every time you're just sitting idling, waiting to make a left turn, A, it's the most dangerous thing you do on the road is make a left turn. Sure. Plus it, it's wasting a lot of fuel, so you don't want to do that. Yeah, that if makes so much sense. And I think a lot of people don't plan the route. Like, they might try and uh, pull together some errands and think, all right, I'm leaving the driveway, and I'm going to go to this place and that place and whatever. They're adding places, but not thinking about how do I plan that route to avoid all those left-hand turns. Um but you're right. Those companies, those delivery companies, they kind of depend on it, don't they? About 15 years ago, um, globally, they started revamping UPS and everybody. They were they did global revamps of their routes to save fuel. And it was phenomenal how much they realized time, safety and money they could save um, by mapping out the routes that strategically. So you can do the same thing. You can take a page from their book and do that. And this time of year, I get it. I'm like a squirrel running around. I forget something. I come home. I forgot the squash and I run back out. Yeah, I get it. It's hard. But because fuel is so high, it's your money. So don't give it away if you don't have to. And the other big one is when you're on the highway, like when you're driving, speed. If you do 100K an hour instead of 120K, you'll save 20%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Most of us are driving vehicles that are too big. Because gas has been free and credit's been free. So a lot of people are driving around very big, very empty SUVs and pickups and minivans and stuff. And you're probably kicking yourself and now you can't do much about it. So, I, you know, me telling you to get a hybrid or a smaller car, you've got to drive the one you have. I understand that. So do it strategically. Don't drive more than you have to and don't speed. Yeah, you mentioned speed there. What about speed as you approach traffic lights? How's that for gas consumption? The best thing you can be doing, and everyone should be doing this anyway for safety, is don't stare at your hood ornament. It's not going anywhere. Your eyes should be up really high. You should see what's going on like a block away so you can anticipate what lights are going to be doing. And you can, you know, there's, if you put your accelerator down, there's, um, 
everyone thinks brake and gas. You've also got less less fuel, like just taking your foot off the gas, you'll start to slow down, obviously. So anticipate what's happening in traffic. And there's no sense in racing up to a red light. Which a, a lot of people light. do, yeah. They do. And worse yet, they jam through it, which is really dangerous for pedestrians and cyclists. Please, please, please realize we have to share the road with everyone and they get to live. Sure. They make a mistake. No <laughs> kidding. Trying, you know. So it, pay, pay attention to your surroundings. Look at what's going on. And it's safer that way, too. I like that tip. If you're just joining me now, my guest is automotive journalist Lorraine Summerfeld, and she's taking your questions next after the break. So whether it's around winter tires, uh, chains on your vehicles, how to stop in an emergency, dry ice, you name it, call in with your questions. It's 604-280-9898 on the open line. And Lorraine, uh, I wanted to ask you also about hauling around weight in your vehicle and what that has to do with fuel. Um, the more you're carrying, um, obviously, that's why heavy vehicles use more fuel. So it works for if you've got a lot of stuff. If you've got golf clubs in the boot of your car that you don't need, if it's off season, get the stuff out. Having said that, uh, I know some people who will go to an extreme. I like a full tank of fuel through the winter. I think it, that's a safety thing. And yes, it weighs more than half a tank, but that's a place I won't compromise. So you have to play it both ways. Like you have to decide, you know, which is safer and what's not. But we have a lot of junk in our cars. We carry a lot of stuff around. And the worst thing is I'm going to give this into Value Village or whatever, all the garbage bags full of clothes. And they're in there for six months. (laughs) (laughs) Sheepish smile over here because uh, after many months, I finally asked myself, what's that clinking sound in the back? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's stuff from uh, some beach trip I made how many ever months ago. (laughs) Sure. That doesn't need to be in my vehicle anymore. No, it doesn't. And if if you're in a crash, um, unfortunately, anything that's loose in your car becomes a projectile. It keeps going the speed you were at. So you don't want stuff rolling around in the back seat or in the footwell because it keeps going. So again, safety. But what about uh, your safety kit, your emergency kit? Especially where you guys are, definitely a good thing. Same out here. Um, You can get those little foil blankets that look like a little piece of foil. They'll actually keep you warm if you have breakdowns. And last year we saw the highway collapses out in BC, which is just horrifying. So you want to have chocolate, you want to have a lighter, you want to have water, 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 get water in there. You need to have that um, cliff bars, granola bars, something like that. And proper footwear. So often we go out to our vehicle and we look really nice. We've got on the shoes we want to be wearing where we end up. You can't walk anywhere in those. So right. take the kids' old winter boots or whatever. Half the time they'll fit mom, even if they don't fit the kids anymore. Have a pair of sensible boots in there so that if you have to, you can walk somewhere. Hey there, welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Sohal, in for Jill Bennett, and we're chatting with Lorraine Sommerfeld. She's an automotive journalist with Driving.ca, and she's taking your driving-related questions in this segment. So call in with those questions at 604-280-9898, and we're going to Lawrence in Burnaby. Hi there, Lawrence. Hi there, how are you? Great. What's your question? Merry Christmas to you. Uh, I'm just curious. I've, I've been the car guy since I was two years old, and that's a fact. I build engines, I paint cars, you know, that's my thing. But I would say 98% of the cars built in the last 10, 15, 20 years probably have ABS and traction control. So I'm just kind of confused why people still just, not all, but a lot of people I see are putting their snow tires on the driving wheels and that's it. 
because if your traction control is not going to work all that well if you've only got snows on two of the four wheels. That's a great question, and it's also one of controversy. I've heard people weigh in on it differently. So, Lorraine, what do you think? I think Lawrence is bang on, and this is a practice that should die, die, die. You're absolutely right. You're compromising every single piece of safety equipment in your car when you do this. Your tires are the only thing connecting you to the road. So the driver and the tires are the most important part of that vehicle. When you compromise any of those, you don't want you impaired. You don't want your tires impaired. And so putting on two winter tires, doesn't. my dad used to do this. He's been dead for 25 years. He'd be 90 now. It, it was an old school train of thought to save money and you know, I understand that. However, it's not. And as Lawrence says, you're compromising every part of the system of that car. You replaced your tires, all of them, all at once. If you have to repair one, I understand that. I get it. But don't let them get too old and have dedicated winters. All weathers are not bad. If that's, you know, if you know you're not going to trade them over, then go to all weathers. They're getting better. But ultimately, the best thing you can do is have dedicated winter tires on their own rims and good all seasons and change them, you know, before the weather changes. So, Lorraine, why are people still still doing it, though? Um, I, I think it's a leftover kind of thing where you think, well, I, people want to save money. Driving a car costs money. You have to accept that there's costs involved with that. And all I can tell people is maintenance is so much cheaper than repair. And if you think you're going to save money by not using winter tires or by using them improperly, everyone's been in a parking lot. If you bang a car, as soon as two cars touch, it's minimum $2,000 damage. Minimum. And that's if you don't break the paint. Cars are expensive to fix. I got dinged in a parking lot two weeks ago. And I looked at it and I went, that's like 3000 bucks. It's $5,000. And I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. So I, you have no idea how expensive this stuff is to fix. If you have proper tires on and it spares you from having to do that, you have saved all the money, all the money and more that those tires are going to cost you. Okay, let's move on to Al in Langley. Hi, Al. Hello. Hi, Lawrence. What's your question? Well, it's not a question. He's not right about the tires and that. On the new cars, since ABS brakes, yes, you got to have four tires the same. On an older car, before ABS brakes, there's no requirement. They say there is, but there is. it doesn't matter. It has no bearing on it, whether you have two or four. Okay, Al, thanks. I know that. I'm a mechanic by trade. Okay, thank you for that. Al, what do you think about that, Lorraine? Um, he's talking ABS been around a long, long time. Same with traction control has been mandated since I think 2001. So if we're talking about older, I mean, 40-year-old cars, I understand what he's saying. Um, but most of us are driving cars that are, let's say, uh, new to 15 years for most of us. Okay, now we're going to go to Ron in Coquitlam. Merry Christmas, Ron. What's your question? Merry Christmas right back to you guys. Um You have a car that is a rear-wheel drive. You have four snow tires on it that are in good condition. Which way do you install the front snow tires? Because the only time it's effectively helping you is when you brake. And you're trying to stop. 
Yeah, and if you have them as traction tires, they're not going to do anything more than summer tires because they're going to get plugged up with snow. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Lorraine, what are your thoughts on it? I'm I'm still going with all around all yeah. the time. It's, yeah. it's what the manufacturers want you to do when they build those vehicles. And I know people think it's a, a, a cash grab. Right. I don't get a nickel from winter tire companies. Trust me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish I did. But I really believe for safety, we're talking to the general public. We're not talking to everyone's a mechanic. You know what? Do what's the safest thing for you and your family and replace the tires when they need to be done. Do it, do it properly. Put the right vehicle, put the right tires on the, on your vehicle. Yeah. And, and tire technology has changed so much over the years, hasn't it? Like oh, there... oh, oh, just unbelievable. Even in the past 10 years, the difference in compound winter tires are soft. Yeah. So if you picture a, a hockey puck, um, the way that that's an all weather tire, they get very hard and they slide across the ice. And what you've got with winter tires, they're a lot softer so they can grab. That's the reason you don't leave them on in the summer because the roads will shred them. They will absolutely annihilate the tread. So, no, the new new components of winter tires are just phenomenal. And the same with wiper blades, people. Change those as well. Oh, that's a great tip. And I am going to record that one from to my brain because uh, I've been needing to do that for quite some time. And then when we talk about all-wheel drive and, and getting winter tires on, we're, we're talking about two different things, right? There's traction control, or maybe this is one and the same. There's the ability to stop safely. That's the issue on ice and snow, right? A lot of people believe when they have all-wheel drive that they can magically brake better. All-wheel drive will definitely help you get going better. But it has nothing and, to do with stopping, right? Well, who's the first one in the ditch? It's always the top-heavy SUVs that are the first one in the ditch. Right. And because people get overconfident. So, you know, winter tires, yes, you need it. Even if you have all-wheel drive, you need winter tires. And I know people are going to argue, I don't go out enough. That's great. If you don't have to go out, that's the perfect place to be in a storm. The best, the best, the safest thing is to not leave your driveway. I've said that twice now. You're probably wondering why anyone is buying it's a so car. So true, though. <laughs> no, it is true. But no, you know, you've got traction control. If you're stuck in deep snow, you know how sometimes your wheels are spinning. Take off your traction control because you want the wheels. You want them to connect, and then when you get out, put it back on again. Okay. And that's something that a lot of people don't know, especially if they're not seasoned drivers or, you know, somebody hasn't told them. But that's, other than that, traction control will save you. But when you feel it go off, you know, when you hear yeah. as you're driving, okay, your car just saved you. You overdrove your skill level and it just saved you. Okay, so, so yeah. if you've got your winter tires on and you are driving on a slick road, there's nobody around, you hit a patch of ice, you need to stop what do you do? It's terrifying. It is. Um, stay calm. Keep your hands on the wheel at three and nine. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong kind of clock. Don't take your hands off the wheel because the second you do, you won't know which way your tires are headed because you'll start spinning. Like you'll grab the wheel and the wheel is not there for your safety. It's for you to steer the vehicle. Look where you want to go. If you're staring at a light post, you will hit it. Your brain is a computer. And so 
you're feeding it information through your eyes. So look where you want to go, which is a safe landing, which is, you know, off the side of the road. Yeah. The snow drift is fine. It's better than a pole. It's better than a house. It's better than another vehicle. Yeah. Uh, whiteouts are terrifying. I can't give you good tips about that because nobody can. Whiteouts are, you know, if you know something's going to happen, don't okay. go out. Okay. Thanks for that, Lorraine. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Hey there, Raji Sohal here in for Jill today. And by now, you've probably decorated your home for Christmas, right? It's uh, December 16. And if you have a pet, you have definitely taken that factor into consideration when it comes to your tree. Well, my next guest says pet owners have to pay extra attention over the holiday season, which ends up being a very busy time at the animal hospital too. Lauren Edelman is a veterinarian with Canada West Veterinary Specialists, and she joins us on the line now. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great of you to join us. But before we get into the Christmas tree and decorations and pets, let's talk about human food, because apparently that's part of the reason why you see an increased number of uh, people and their pets over the holidays. Yeah, so the holidays are always a busy time of year the veterinary hospital and you never want to be one of those pet owners that has to leave your Christmas celebration or holiday celebration to to come to see the vet and yeah human foods and treats are probably one of the most common reasons so any holiday whether it's Thanksgiving or this time of year things like chocolates raisins all those sweets that we get are really enticing to pets also everyone's doing a lot of cooking so onions uh, grapes on fruit flat platters and also really rich foods like turkey, other table scraps can be really threatening to, to animals. So I don't have a pet yet. We would love a dog, a whippet to be exact, but uh, I'm going to wait till the kids are a little bit older and we have the time for it. But I wasn't aware that so many human foods are life-threatening for some pets. Yeah, I think we all know about the chocolate. You know, yes. that's probably the most common one that we think of. But grapes and raisins are something that a lot of people don't know about. Didn't it's know that something one. That's come, yeah, it comes to light more in the last probably five, ten years. Um, and they can cause kidney failure. So we definitely uh, want to keep those away from pets. And then the other big thing we see is, you know, there's a lot of rich foods. There's turkey, there's potatoes, there's stuffing on the table and Pets love to eat that kind of thing, and they're really rich. And so one of the things, they're not necessarily toxic, but if pets eat really high fatty foods, it can cause pancreatitis, which can be a life-threatening problem. And what about garbage in pets' reach? How big of a deal is that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of it is, you know, you or your guests feeding your pets things they shouldn't from the table. Yeah. But honestly, the most common thing is the cleanup often gets forgotten and you know your your golden retriever ends up on the table and eats the the turkey carcass or the garbage you know bags are near the front door or not fully concealed in the garbage and you know somebody gets into the garbage and eats all the bones which can be really dangerous so so probably more so than avoiding feeding them is making sure you clean up and get that garbage out of their reach. Yeah, Lauren, and I can see that happening really easily given you've got guests over, you're hosting, you're super busy, there's music playing and you're entertaining folks. Meanwhile, your pup gets into the garbage. I can see that happening. Yeah, that's probably the number one way that we see, you know, the dog get the the carcass and then that, that causes them to get really sick. And what about the Christmas tree? 
Yeah, so obviously Christmas decorations, the Christmas tree is really nice and really beautiful, but it's also just as exciting for a curious pet. And so, you know, lots of tinsel, glass ornaments, they can be ingested. You wouldn't think, oh, why would my cat ever ingest tinsel? But it's a you know sparkly thing. It's usually long and stringy. It's the perfect toy for a cat. And cats love to eat things they shouldn't just as much as dogs. I One of the things I do is endoscopy where, you know, you go in and remove things from the stomach. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to remove tinsel from a cat's no, stomach. No, really. Oh, Lauren, that's awful. And also I was thinking about power cords because around Christmas time, we tend to have, you know, more extension cables lying around during the holidays, right? Do those end up being hazardous to our pets? Definitely. So lots of lights and wires inside or outside the home, um, chewing on electrical cords, can cause electrical shock and oral burns. So if you are using lights inside the home, uh, you definitely want to use covers and organizers to make these cords um, less accessible or not accessible and out of sight. And if you have an ultra curious pet, you just maybe brought home a chocolate lab puppy, maybe this year isn't the best year <laughs> to go full on with your Christmas decorations. You know, I think that it really depends on the pet as well. Some animals just could care less about the Christmas tree. But if you have a really curious cat or dog, you definitely want to avoid any sort of emergency visits because they ate your decor during the holidays. I bet. Do you even get time off during the Christmas rush or do you just have to work it? So most veterinary clinics, especially ours at Canada West, we're a 24-hour facility. So we stay open 24 hours. Um, I personally am not taking any time off during the Christmas season. Oh, boy. You know, pets always get sick and pets always, always need our help. So, you know, my husband is at home. His season kind of slows down during December and my season ramps up. So uh, veterinary medicine is definitely not an area where we kind of go into slow mode on the no, holidays. No, no kicking your feet up. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time today. You're so welcome. It's great to be on the show. Raji Sohal here in for Jill Bennett. And well, it's a perfect storm. Inflation has left many people needing more help around the holidays than normal. But then inflation has also left folks who normally do make charitable donations at this time of year not in a position to contribute. Well, what does this mean for BC's and Canada's charities? Joining me now to talk about this is Kendra Milne. She's an executive director at Health Justice. Hi, Kendra. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you guys have conducted this survey. What did the results show? Yeah, Imagine Canada conducted a survey um, across Canada, and there's BC-specific results as well, that really show that um, it looks like this year annual giving is down. Um, and it also looks like um, uh, if you know fewer folks are uh, planning to give at the end of this year um, in the sort of holiday period, which is a really common time for charities to get um, sometimes up to sort of 40% of their donations, as well as across this year more generally. And so it feels like the inflation and in the economy right now is really impacting folks. Um, and at the same time, what that means is that more folks are in need of charitable support. So more folks are struggling to meet their basic needs. Yeah, so the survey showed that half of Canadian adults say they intend to donate less compared to, uh, or say that they intend to donate versus 56% who said that they donated in 2021. And then the yeah. ones donating are saying that they're going to give less to the tune of 
38% less. What will that mean for people? Yeah, I mean, I think it puts um, charities in a really, really challenging spot because they end up having increased demand for their services because we know folks are struggling right now um, with more, uh, sorry, with less money to do that important work. And so um, it really is a bit of a catch-22 for for charities and their communities trying to support people. Yeah, what do those numbers say about Canadians and our generosity, our, our willingness to give? Yeah, so some of the, it's really interesting because the survey also asked about um, people's thoughts on on generosity and it was still super clear that charitable giving and generosity is really important to Canadians um, and people think that donating and volunteering to people that are less fortunate is a really powerful way um, to give back during the holidays and just to show their generosity um, but uh, they're running up against some um, really challenging times to be able to do that while still sort of meeting their basic needs. And one of the other sort of less um, um, less positive findings in the survey was that um, people are fe- feeling less hopeful right now. So fewer people are volunteering and people are really um, ex- sort of experiencing a lot of stress related to economic worries in a way that um, makes them feel less hopeful about the future. And then is that less hopeful about the future somehow indicative of our level of empathy for others? I, I mean, I so I work um, at Health Justice and um, work related to mental health and substance use, and I do think that it, it does impact people's empathy because I think um, it's harder to um, sort of find the generosity and space to to recognize that other people are really struggling when you're struggling too. It's just hard to find that bandwidth in your life, and so I, I think it absolutely does. Now, I know your study didn't look at this, but I'm really curious because I think around this time of the year, a lot of people with religious, uh, various religious, really, it's not any one religion, um, and spiritual beliefs uh, will, out of a place of gratitude, uh, look around them, see the need and give, even when maybe they don't have that bandwidth themselves. Uh, What do you think the role of religion has to play in Canadians' generosity? I mean, I think anything that gives folks um, sort of a compass in their lives to to maintain generosity and empathy towards other people, whether that be um, religion, whether that be, I mean, some people get it, I think, through their political views, all sorts of different ways. And I think, um, I, can, I, think I do think we see some of that in the survey because we do see this um, sort of still really high commitment to wanting to do those things. And I think it comes down to the fact that you know, people are really struggling to make choices around paying their rent and making sure there's dinner on the table and yeah. things like that. So, yeah. You know, we, we've we heard about this issue hitting here in Metro Vancouver really hard, hitting the food bank hard, hitting uh, the Surrey Christmas Bureau hard, uh, both of those organizations saying that the need is up, the demand is there, but then the supply is down. And, you know, the charities can't meet the growing demand um, in part because they're facing the same pressures from inflation, right? They're uh, also having to deal with uh, high gas prices, high food costs. So what can be done? What can be done to get charitable giving up? Yeah, I think one of the solutions that's been identified is to think about ways for us to kind of pool our generosity and be able to support charities, but maybe not through charitable giving um, or maybe in addition to charitable giving at the end of the year that's so individually dependent on where people are at at that time. And so um, one of the things that Imagine Canada really proposes is greater federal government support um, for charities. And and that can come with actually not costing taxpayers more money uh, because there's ways to kind of shift existing funding that's focused on new projects and innovation towards uh, meeting some of these really core needs to make sure that 
we have a foundation to be able to meet growing demand so that we don't end up sort of trying to rely on the folks that actually need our support to make donations to pay for that support, which is a system that we're really seeing the impacts of right now. And Kendra, in general, would you say trying to get that government support, that government funding for charities is easy enough? Like, is it easy enough for nonprofits to qualify for those that funding that's out there? It's, I mean, I think uh, health justice is very um, grateful. We have funding from the federal government right now. It's often project-based. So it's often based of, on thinking something new or expanding your services in some way. And often it doesn't um, cover things like paying your rent for your organization and paying your core staff to make sure they can keep their jobs. And so the funding is certainly there. And I think what's being proposed is a shift in that funding. So maybe now is not the time that we think about innovation and new ways to do things. Maybe we think about ways we can just meet basic needs right now until folks are in a more stable space. How are views on community support and community presence and community care changing around giving, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, what what we see, and I can only speak really from health justice's experience, is that we see as folks, you know, folks are really riding this wave of just immense stress after the pandemic and now experiencing such economic hardship because of inflation. And, and sort of like I said before, I think that ends up making it really hard sometimes for people to see, to, to be empathetic towards other people and to trust that charities or the government are going to support folks where, where the support is needed. Um, and I think those, that kind of ongoing stress and reduced hope that folks are feeling absolutely impacts that. And so I think now's the time for folks that, um, you know, if you, if you have the hope and you have faith in those things and you maybe have are in a lucky enough spot to be able to have some extra space, now might be the time to step up and really try to support the organizations in your community. Okay. Well, thank you for that and for your time today, Kendra. Thank you so much. Hey there, Raji Sohal here in for Jill Bennett. Well, the recent passing of Twitch, uh, Stephen Boss, whom you might know from being a star on Ellen and of that Dancing with, with the Stars celebrity fame, really, he died earlier this week from suicide. And it's resurfaced the conversation about how you just never know what someone is going through personally, no matter what their exterior is like. My next guest is Maria Weaver. She's the manager of suicide prevention with the Canadian Mental Health Association in BC. Hello, Maria. Hi, Raji. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, it's such an important topic. You know, the tragic news earlier this week about Twitch's death was even more of a shock when the update said that he died of suicide. Because for anyone who saw him as a regular on the show Ellen or saw his uh, daily posts on social media where he's dancing with a big smile on his face every day, he's dancing with his wife, and they would think, wow, there's a happy person, you know, he's grateful for his life. He's always hashtagging blessed and grateful. It's almost like people are wondering if he suffered from depression, if he felt so alone that he ended his life, who else does? For sure. Yeah, I think it can really take us aback when, you know, like you said, you see this this exterior of someone who seems to be kind of putting out into the world an image that's that's so positive, that's so confident and blessed, as you said. And, and so I can appreciate how for lots of folks, this has come as a big shock and and can leave folks wondering, you know, what was I missing? I think there's a lot going on there. And I think for, for one, you know, it, it, sometimes you can't tell easily. I mean, obviously we're getting through social media often a very curated 
view of, of what's going on for somebody. Absolutely. And it, some folks as well won't, you know, be upfront about what's going on because of fear of, of stigma. So there's a lot, I think, going on behind why we might not necessarily know right away what, what's happening for someone. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because it does mm-hmm. seem like people do talk about their mental health issues more now than, say, mm-hmm. I don't know, 10 years ago. But why is there still stigma around it when, you know, it's like, as you say, we we do know that despite the exteriors, despite social media posts and that kind of thing, we do know that nobody has a perfect life, despite what's portrayed mm-hmm. on the outside. So then why is there pressure for people to pretend like everything's OK when they're suffering inside? For sure. Well, Rodney, that's a very big question, and I don't know that there's necessarily one kind of clear answer to that. But I do think, although we've we've really come far in in combating stigma and and in being more open about mental health, we're still we still have a ways to go to kind of get matched up to where we are um, in terms of how we talk about physical health. An example that I often use is um, this idea of you know if you're struggling with thoughts of suicide. In, in some ways, it's equivalent to what might be happening for you if you were playing soccer with a friend and tripped and, you know, grievously injured your leg. In that kind of scenario, we're not taken aback to kind of shout, hey, I need help. My leg is broken or bleeding or what have you. Um, but people still don't know what to do when somebody makes those disclosures a lot of the time or might feel, you know, there's often common perceptions of mental illness making someone weak. And so I think there's still a lot of work to be done and, and a lot of, you know, it's discomfort as well. It's a scary thing to talk about. And especially if when someone, when it's someone you're close with or someone you value, it, it can be hard to have those conversations. So let's talk about how to have those conversations. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So Definitely, I know one of the most common things we get asked, we run at CMHABC, we run a number of kind of mental health trainings, workplace training, we do suicide prevention training. A lot of people are often say, you know, I'm afraid to intervene because I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to yeah. make it worse. And the nice thing is, is I tell people this, and sometimes people say, oh, Maria, there's no way this is real. I promise it's true. It is actually difficult to, to make things worse. It, going in with good intention, just even asking, you know, hey, I noticed that you've been off your game lately. I've noticed you've not been participating as much in meetings. Um, Maybe you're not coming to soccer practice as often. How's it going? What's going on? Being asked an open-ended question like that and kind of calling into what we're noticing in someone can be an incredibly powerful thing to do and really allow people that space to kind of share what's going on for them. I guess also behind that is the underlying sense of care that you're inquiring Mm -hmm. because you do care about that person. Totally. Yeah. When we talk about, you know, asking these questions, sometimes people, this idea of being nosy gets in the way and you think, oh, well, I don't ask because it's none of my business. But we like to differentiate the difference between being nosy versus being helpfully nosy. And like you said, when we're being helpfully nosy, when we're asking those questions for someone's safety or because we we care, we're doing it for that person. We're not doing it because we just want to kind of get the get the scoop and move on. Um, we're asking those questions because we care and, and we're trying to show that person that we're we're interested and that we want to help in whatever way we can. And if things are severe, if someone is really depressed, I have heard before that it's okay to ask them, are you suicidal? Yes, absolutely. So that's one of the most common myths that is still out there. This idea that talking about suicide or asking someone about suicide can put the idea in someone's head. Um, and the nice thing is humans are just not that influenceable. Um, there's a workshop that we offer called Safe Talk at, at CMHA. It's through a company called Living Works. And the example they always tell you to give is, you know, if I were to ask you, think about the thing in your life that's your prized possession. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a really nice, you know, vacation home you've got, what have you. And I were to say, you know, are you thinking of giving that object to me? 
my asking is not going to change your relationship to that topic. So most people are not going to be influenced by that kind of conversation. If anything, what it's saying to folks is, you know, hey, I'm willing to go to that place with you. I'm willing to have this conversation and I'm a safe person to talk to. And for a lot of people, that might be the first time someone's actually demonstrated that. And that can feel very validating for the person having thoughts of suicide. Yeah. Just personally, so many years ago, I don't even know how many years ago now, but I did say to a friend who seemed like they were in a terrible way and struggling, I asked them if they were suicidal. They broke down saying, mm-hmm. yes, yes, I, that they had mm-hmm. had suicidal thoughts. And it led to them getting help and feeling much better after long term. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And such a, such a powerful conversation. And even if, you know, sometimes people say, what if I ask the question and they say no? Great. Um, even, if they, even if you get a no, you know, great. They're not in that place. And most often it's still going to build rapport with that person. They're still going to move on to tell you, you know, no, that's actually not what's going on for me. But here's what is going on for me. And so you're still opening that conversation to talk about getting further support. That's great. That's a great tip. Now let's talk about people who are doing all right, what they can do to help others when they do see that person is struggling and the person Mm -hmm. admits that they're struggling, then what can be done? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, If folks feel comfortable doing so, leaving just a little space right off the bat to kind of acknowledge that disclosure, to, to validate those feelings, to listen, can be super powerful. Going from there, though, there's lots of resources out in the community. I know there's obviously lots of wait times and, and sometimes systems are hard to navigate, but we're really lucky in, in British Columbia to have a number of, of mental health resources available to folks. Um, I always recommend, you know, somebody's in kind of imminent risk of harm, if, if you're quite worried. Um, we do uh, have the 1-800-SUICIDE number here in BC. So that is a, a 24 hours a day, seven days a week crisis line numbers folks can access for support. Um, And you can actually call on behalf of someone as well. So if you're with someone and they disclose something to you and you're like, hey, you know, how would you feel about calling the crisis line? You folks can actually make that call together. So that can be kind of a team effort if it feels good. There's also um, CMHA uh, runs with some partners that here to help website. Um, And that's a kind of list of all kinds of mental health and substance use resources, as well as information. So you can look for for things in your area as well. So we really want to make sure anytime someone's disclosing uh, that they're having thoughts of suicide, we want to make sure they're getting connected to that further support. And the last thing I'll say as well is making sure that we're connected to support too. Having these conversations are very difficult, even when you're the helper, if you're doing okay. So making sure that we're taking care of ourselves as well when we're in those interactions. Maria, I really appreciate your openness in this conversation. Thank you for being our guest. For sure. Thanks for having me, Raji.